0: 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to read the chapter again. If you would read with me, 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. now I know in part; then I shall know fully, as even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide; these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is where our attention will be today: is on the topic of love, from verses mainly from the verses uh, four through seven. Last week we began with uh, quite the uh, upfront statement that some of this is difficult to talk about. Because of some touchy topics uh, and the gifts of the spirit this week, not so much, even though we're still within that context, still desiring to know how we as believers who are gathered here uh, should uh, love one another who have been gifted in different ways. Um, This passage does have universal application in the sense that on its own, it can stand as truth. So we do have universal application we see in weddings and things like that. But we will look at it here within its context. And then I hope that in community groups and in your own family, uh, you uh, can make some applications for you. Husbands for you and your spouse, wives for you and your spouse, your children or uh, for other fellow sisters and brothers in Christ here in the body. So we'll begin uh, looking at first in your bulletin you have love is a blank For all three points. First is love is a verb. Have You ever heard of the band DC Talk? Anybody? DC Talk? I'm probably dating myself. But that was my band growing up. And um, yeah, thank you. And uh, DC Talk has a song, Love is a Verb. I don't remember much about it, but they kept repeating the phrase, love is a, love is a, love is a verb. So that's about as good as they got too. So. Uh, that's telling you the kind of music I was into as a kid. Um, love is a verb. These 15, there are 15 items here in verses 4 through 7. These 15 adjectives or descriptions of love are often portrayed in our New Testaments as adjectives or nouns. These are actually verbs. What's the difference? Anybody know, kids, learning English? What's the difference between a noun and in a verb. And noun does what? Name something, and a verb does what? Does something. There's a huge difference. So when we read, sometimes we can read this and we can say love is this and love is this and love does and doesn't do this and and sometimes it can make us walk away with this ethereal feeling of what an emotion or uh, Lovey dovey feels like. And so we see this at weddings in times where uh, people don't really have the real perspective of love. You, you don't want to walk up to a husband or soon to be uh, bride or groom at their wedding day uh, at the you know ceremony and say, let me tell you what it's going to be like here in a couple of months. You don't do that. You want them to feel like this is the it is the greatest day of their life. <laughs> It is the greatest day of their life, so you want them to feel like that, however this these being verbs tells us that this is just this isn 't just the nature of love, but this is showing us how love acts. this isn 't just what love is, but this is what love does. Uh, let me see if I can illustrate it in a sense with a tree. <clears throat> this is um, in, in thinking about this analogy of of what, what is going on here and how, how I can best wrap my mind around it. I think of like an apple tree. If, if, if I want to know how to get apples, if I want to know how to get uh, pink ladies, I love pink ladies. If I want to know how to get pink ladies, it's an apple. Um, I don't study, I don't take an apple home and study it or take it to a laboratory and ask them to recreate it. I get down and I dig in the dirt and I talk to people who know what they're doing and I plant seeds. And I wait. And I wait for a long time. But in that process of waiting, I'm working. And I'm doing stuff to the ground and I'm doing stuff to this shoot that's coming up and I'm pampering it and I'm working. I don't know exactly how many years it takes before you're actually getting fruit off of it. Uh, I was talking to a tree farmer this last week in McMinnville. And I did not realize that it takes eight to ten years for a fir tree to become a Christmas tree that's six to eight feet tall. And I thought it was like in the course of a year and a half, two years, so that there's good turnover. Um, But he's pampering these trees for six, seven, eight years for a few dollars, whatever he sells them for, in the course of the time that takes that tree to grow up. So in thinking about this idea of love, it's not just what I'm pursuing with the apple is, I'm pursuing the apple, but it takes a lot of work. There's there's things that has to be done to produce the apple. So if we're coming to this text and we're just saying love is these adjectives or these descriptors, we pursue the descriptor, but we have to know there's a lot of work that goes into it. There's there's work that is has, having to be done here. So we want to let me read you another translation of these few verses uh, given by one author where he takes all of them and he turns them into action verbs. So let's see, it it might be a little bit different, but um, this is is an excellent translation. Love waits patiently instead of just love is patient. Love waits patiently. Love shows kindness. Love does not burn with envy, does not brag, is not inflated with its own importance. It does not behave with ill-mannered impropriety. It is not preoccupied with the interests of the self, does not become exasperated into irritation, does not keep a reckoning of up of evil. Love does not take pleasure at wrongdoing, but joyfully celebrates truth. It never tires of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. We looked at last week, love is an action, but if it's only an action and nothing else and it doesn't have love, then love is nothing, meaningless, and of no value for us. So we want to find out what is it? What are these characteristics and thinking about how we can become the type of people that these flow out of? We, we want apples. We need to be the type of tree that produces apples. So how do we become the type of people that these attributes and verbs flow out of. We're not pursuing... That's where my analogy breaks down. We're not pursuing the apple and that's it. We're pursuing to becoming the type of tree that apples come from. So if you want to be patient in your love with your spouse or friend, you're desiring to be patient. You need to be the type of person that patience and showing patience and waiting patiently flows from let me give you a definition of love that i'm working from so that we don't think that this is just more than let me just really work hard and try and maintain some of these actions because that's not at all what i'm saying if if you hear what i'm saying it's not again pursue the action it's be the type of person so john piper in his book desiring god gives an excellent definition love is the overflow of joy in god which gladly meets the needs of others. Let me repeat it. Love is the overflow of joy in God. Overflow of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. He doesn't say love is really trying to make the other person feel good and really, really showing your wife you care really showing that other believer um, that you are glad they're part of this body and that you are happy to see them and that you are willing to sacrifice for their needs or whatever the case is. It's an overflow of joy in God. That's the type of person that love flows from. A person who is full of God and overflowing with joy to gladly meet the needs of others. So we're going to go through this list of 15 items. You said, we only have three points in our bulletin. Yeah, but one of them has 15 sub points. So we're going to go through these 15, hopefully quick. This is the lion's share of the message, though. And we want to go through and we want to, as we're going through, not not look at this list and say. I've got that one down. I, I think I kind of I'm pretty good at patience. I don't I don't need that. Oh, I, I need I need to work on my kindness a little bit. My wife says I do. People tell me I'm not. I'm kind of abrasive. Maybe I should work on kindness. We don't want to do that. But we want to be praying that God would draw us to love him supremely. So that we are filled up with joy in God. And that these characteristics just flow out from us to those around us. I'm really excited about some of these points. All of the points, but some of them just, when reading and studying, have just jumped off the page. To man, to make me want to be the person who is filled up with God, and not pursuing. How do I treat them? You know, they're unique, and these pe- all these people are different, have different giftings, and how do I how do I treat all these people? And that can be we can just run around in circles all day and get exasperated with how to do all this. Love God. So let's look at that. Let's look at what it looks like when we are filled up with God. First, love is patient. Love waits patiently. Literally, this is love has a long fuse. One who waits patiently for God's timing. A person who values God and his will above all else will be patient when others don't move at our pace or have the same priority as us. A short fuse is isn't is an excuse for angry outbursts. A short fuse fuse is sin. And it's coveting something that we're not currently getting at the moment. A short fuse is often seen as well, I just I have a short fuse. That's that's who I am. That's my that's my struggle. No, that's sin. And it's sin because you're coveting something other than God. Love Waits patiently. Secondly, love shows kindness. This is the only time that this word appears in the New Testament. And it kind of comes across as kind of bland when you read it in your English translation. Love is kind. Okay. Love is nice. Want to be a nice guy. That's not what he's talking about. The word here. Let me let me read the Greek word and it has a purpose for why I'm reading it. The Greek word is Christuete, Christuete. And in the second century, the spectacle of Christian love, the second century, we're only one century removed from when this is written, maybe maybe 50 to 75 years. So in the second century, the spectacle of Christian love was so stunning for pagans that they called Christians not Christiani, which is what they were known as, but Christiani. Christiane, which comes from this word, Crestuate. They were basically calling these people kindness. They were Christians and they were changing their name. People in the second century who were pagans, didn't believe in Christ, didn't believe in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, are watching this church and they're calling them kindness. You're Christians, but I'm going to change your name just slightly because I I, I just see this. Evidence of Christian love, and it's so stunning. People don't do that in our society. We see Christians, and sometimes we are weary of doing business with them. Sometimes we don't really know if we can trust them. Sometimes, I mean, statistics say, in our divorce rate, it's the same. Sometimes we don't expect them to be any more moral or upstanding than those in the world. And maybe even sometimes less less than those in the world. Would people use your name? Or would people use our name, our church's name as a synonym for kindness? Have you ever thought of that? If if Jesus is a synonym basically for the gospel, Christ, Jesus Christ is in his person. I mean, in his whole person, he is the gospel embodied. If Jesus can be a synonym for the gospel, are we as his followers, his disciples, are we synonyms of what the gospel looks like? People look at us and they say, boy, that man, you people have grace and truth. You guys are. merciful. You are kind. I don't know anything about your services. I never I don't know anything about theology or doctrine, but all I know is what I see from your people. And You guys, you must love God. There must be something different about you. I I was I was blown away with the idea that in the second century, people were they were pagans were changing their name because of this Stark contrast of what this Christian love looked like. So, secondly, that love is kind. Do you show kindness like that? Are you the type of person that that comes from? Love does not envy. That's the third one. Love does not burn with envy. This one's full of emotion. There's several that are just oozing with emotion. Love is not just an emotion, but love is nothing less than an emotion. Love is full of emotion, and some of these are just full of emotive love. It does not burn with envy. Some of these also are, are written. Uh, Josh asked a great question on Thursday night. Is this just a random list of characteristics of love? I mean, is there a point why he picked these? And some of these are exactly written for the Corinthians condition, probably all of them that we don't have the context for. But the written, because the Corinthians aren't doing it, Paul's saying, here's what love is. Everything that you're not doing. How would you like to receive a letter from your grandma? Um, here's son, here, grandson, here is what a good, good boy looks like and you're not doing any of it. Oh, grandma. Love does not burn with envy. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul is... He hates the fact that he can't address these as spiritual people, the Corinthians, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Chapter three, verse two, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. Three, for you are still of the flesh. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Envy. This is huge in this time of year. Envy desiring something that we don't have, coveting. This term is used in chapter twelve thirty one, where Paul says that they should desire the greater gift. They should be zealous for, they should burn with envy for a greater gift. It's a word that can mean earnest passion or burning with envy based on the context. Envy is one of those that's an inward emotion, whereas patience, kindness, most of the time have outward Attributes outward acts. Envy is an inward emotion, where it's not known that we're envious until it gets to the point to where we're outwardly hating someone because they have what we want. This is not the mark of one who loves God, one who is burning with envy. Number four is boasting. does not brag. Literally ostentatious boasting or behaving like a braggart. I don't know that I've ever met anyone that enjoys that. That enjoys sitting at the table where the, where the guy can always one-up your story. He's listening to a comedian, he's hilarious. And he was talking about how everybody always... He would love to be in a room with uh, one of the guys who is on like the, the shuttle space You know where they've walked on the moon. And he said, I'd love to be in a table with one of these guys who's always a braggart. And always one-upping everyone's story with a guy who's walked on the moon at the same table. Because he said, that guy who walked on the moon can top anybody's story. You know, the braggart's going on about, yeah, well, my fish was this big. And the guy who walked on the moon, just sitting back, waiting. And then he pipes in, well, I walked on the moon. You know, and can one-up everybody's story. So nobody enjoys it when someone is just going on and on about themselves. They're boasting. It's not possible to boast and to love at the same time. The one action wants others to think highly of themselves, whether they deserve it or not. And the other one cares for none of it, but only for the good of the community as a whole. It's impossible for us to be boastful, be a braggart, and also to have love at the same time. It's like an apple tree wanting or trying to have pears. You can't do it. Next is it is not arrogant. It is not inflated, literally, it is not inflated with its own importance. This one seems to be similar, very similar to boasting. I mean, when you read it, you're like, well, he's he's kind of, you know, just saying the same thing, repeating himself. But this one has a a nuance like puffing oneself up like a pair of bellows. I didn't know what a bellow was, but it's it's those things that you blow air on your fire. And even then, when I found out what a bellow was, I still didn't get it. Puffing yourself up like a pair of bellows. Until I read the definition of a bellow, bellows are used to deliver additional air to the fuel, raising the rate of combustion and therefore the heat output. They're just giving hot air to the fire so that the fire gets hotter. I mean, that's what a person who is just boasting and bringing themselves up and lifting, lifting their name and being arrogant. This term arrogant or what is translated as is not arrogant is used seven times in the New Testament, all seven are written in the letters to the Corinthians. Six of them here in 1 Corinthians. This is arrogance in the face of unholy and unloving actions and proving that the person who is doing this has an unchristian character. Next, translated in the English and the ESV is rude. It does not behave with ill-mannered impropriety. The King James translates this as doth not behave itself unseemly. I think that's a better translation than what we have. Doth not behave itself unseemly. There's an illustration of this in First Corinthians when talking about the Lord's table. And you have some people who come into the Lord's table and they're just they're trying to get into a certain room early so that they can eat the meal. And then they make everybody squish out in the atrium And try and hoard around a table and and eat the scraps of what they've just finished off. And so you have one group of believers in the church who are full and drunk. And enjoying themselves in the big empty space with the door locked. And the rest of the church who's out there, where's our food? They're starving and hungry and thirsty. And their other believers are in another room. Can you even imagine how rude that would be? How unseemly. And these people call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, we don't think of illustrations like that right off the top of their head. That doesn't happen in our church. And maybe because of, you know, society tells us that that's rude and you shouldn't do it. And you probably wouldn't be invited back or asked to bring something else to the next fellowship meal. But love is not rude. It does not dishonor others, is the NIV translation. Sometimes, let me pause here, sometimes there's... We can hear all this information and we might say, why are we going through a list like this? Because I think that, I mean, this is what the scripture is saying and it's helpful for us to explain it. But sometimes this is the only shot that we have. Because if some of you are not in community group, this is the spirit's opportunity to use the scripture to speak to your heart. And so in thinking about this message with with these descriptions of what. God might be what God is asking us to exhibit in our relationship with others. That this is important for us to go over. And so I pray that as you're hearing these, you are praying and asking God that this might not be the type of person that you are, that you are the type of person that does not evidence things like this or that you do evidence what he is, what he is calling us to do here. Next, it does not insist on its own way. Also translated, as it is not preoccupied with the interests of self. Let me be completely honest. This one hit me the hardest. Our natural tendency is to selfish love. A love that seeks our own interests. Everything is revolved around us. And so any situation that happens is somehow very important to me. And I am at the center of my universe. Our theology would deny that, but our practice shows it to be true in my life. Because I work, because I feel like if I don't work, how else am I going to be provided for? I trust God, but at the same time, I feel like I make all these caveats. Well, I've got to, I've got to be smart, and you know, I've, I, I'd never know if, a, if an emergency is going to come up, so I need to make way more than I need, and I need to set back for retirement. Because you never know what's going to happen. And, and while these things are safe and good and helpful, it might not be what God is calling us to be. God is calling us to trust him and to obey him. And sometimes us making our lives revolve around ourselves and our own interests cloud, and cloud us, cloud our judgment and make us covet. So that we're not in, we're not being filled up with God to the point of overwhelming joy in him willing to serve others. But we're full of ourselves. You know what? We're not taught this kind of love system. We're not taught how to be selfish. Uh, our son, Joe, when he came out, was instantly selfish. Instantly. He sat there and he cried because he was cold. And he wanted to be warm. He sat there and he told us, "I would like to eat right now." He didn't He wasn't patient, he wasn't kind. He sought his own. We're not taught how to be selfish. That's the way we are. And so when we're not selfish, when we're not seeking our own, what a better picture of the gospel to our spouse, to our children, to our brother and sister. What a better picture of the gospel. That we can be. Our society even tells us that you know we should pursue our best life now. There are books written by pastors who tell us to pursue the best life now. And give you seven steps of how you can be the most fulfilled person right now. And that's part of it is we don't have an eschatological view that tells us this right here is not the end. This is not what you are living for. And so I think it is extremely helpful that Paul at the end of this list, list reminds us love never fails and points us to when we see face-to-face like we looked at last week. So these characteristics of love, yes, do them. Be the type of person that these flow from. But remember, this is not the end. Love never fails because you're going to see face-to-face and faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Love will never fail and love will last forever. Next, love is not irritable. It is not driven to the point of exasperation. This is the only other time this is used in the New Testament is in Acts 17, where Paul is waiting, he says uh, in Acts 17, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. He was provoked to anger because he sees the city full of idols. So there's a situation where you can be provoked, but here it's provoked to the point of irritation. One commentator writes, and this is this is really helpful because it brings us to when looking at love, sometimes it's easier. um, Well, let me read it because I think it's it's more helpful than I can explain it. It's a few lines long, so uh, bear with me. But this is this is extremely helpful, I thought. Love, Paul urges, does not become exasperated, partly because patience delays exasperation and partly because lack of self-interest diverts a sense of self-importance away from reacting on the grounds of wounded pride. He just said, love does not become exasperated because other factors are already working. So you feel like you've been wounded in your pride. You've already, there's parts of you that are working on uh, self-interest. God is Been convicting you of this, and you are the type of person filled up with God that your self interest no longer sees uh, the desire to be uh, worrying about your wounded pride. So, love does not become exasperated, not embittered by injury, whether real or supposed. At Corinth, one group paraded their gifts and status with ill mannered impropriety because they thoughtlessly ignored the well being and feelings of others. So, that's the truth. One group is saying, We don't care about you, we're going to go eat the Lord's table. And we don't care that you're out there getting hungry or I'm going to use my gift in the middle of the service and disrupt, you know, disrupt everything. And I don't care because it's my gift and I can use it whenever I want. Or some ladies were coming into the service and they weren't caring. Uh, Paul says, uh, if you if you come in, you worship without your head being covered. Uh, in, In those days, it's just a matter of distinguishing between the males and the females. So if you come in and you're worshiping and you look like a male, that's dishonorable. I don't care. I'll come in however I want. I can worship however I feel like. Don't tell me what to do. So there's some that are parading their gifts around and their status, and they don't care. They don't care about the well-being and the feelings of others. Then you have another group who's the less gifted or the less status-endowed group, and they allow themselves to become exasperated into irritation because of the other group who is aggressive and ostentatious and because they're more wrapped up, this, these people are more wrapped up in their feelings than in sharing the sense of joy or liberation of others. So you have two groups. One group saying, I got all these gifts and I can use them whenever I want. I don't care about how other people feel. And the other group who's not willing to rejoice when gifts are used and they just, they huddle in the corner and all they care about is their own feelings. And I've been hurt and that's all I care about. I'm not willing to reach out and to rejoice to other people. And I'm not thankful that someone has more gifts and that could be used for the church. I'm not because all I care about is myself and huddling in a corner. Many churches contain some who parade their gifts while others nurse their hurts. Does either side Paul asks genuinely put the other before the self? Does either side genuinely put the other person before themselves? And that's that's what I think all of this boils down to is the one we went over Just before this, not seeking our own, if I'm not seeking my own importance, I'm going to be more patient with you. If I see God as the ultimate importance and I'm desiring to fill myself up with him, I'm going to be more patient and I'm going to be kind. It's going to overflow in a a wealth of kindness and patience and love. I'm not going to be irritable because it's not because I don't care. But it's because God has given you into this body. And so whether you have one gift or a thousand gifts, I'm so grateful you're here. And that God is having you use your gifts. And I want you, I want to help you use those and rejoice when you do. And when something bad happens, I want to be there. And when something good happens, I want to rejoice with you. And we're not envious of one another. Or resentful. The next one does not keep a reckoning up of evil. In Paul's writing, this verb typically means put to one's account. This is seen many times in the topic of justification, of sins not being put to our account. You are not nursing the memory of a wrong someone did, but instead you refuse to notice anything happened. Did you catch that? You are not nursing the memory of wrong someone did. But instead you refuse to notice anything happened. It's not as though we're just well, I'm just gonna, you know, forgive and forget, I'm just gonna play dumb and act like it never happened. We're we're trusting in God and that somehow this wrong was used by the sovereignty of God for his good pleasure and ultimately for my good. All things work together for our good. Second Corinthians five nineteen says, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. God reconciling the world to himself did not count our trespasses against us. And so then we turn around like the unforgiving servant and we want to strangle one another. And we, we act like we never forgot what happened. This was our series on gospel-driven reconciliation that was just over a month ago. So when we're the type of person that doesn't, that, that is not wanting to be resentful or keeping a track, keeping track or account of evils done to us, then we're not gonna keep emails in a folder for incriminating evidence. We're not gonna harbor ill feelings. You have cleared that person's account because Christ cleared yours before wrathful God. Jesus on the cross pleaded with God for those who are mocking and killing him. And yet sometimes I can't get over someone who just says something hurtful to me, whether they meant it or not, whether I took it out of context or not, whether they were joking and I took it as hurtful. And yet Christ is asking for those who are killing him to be forgiven. Next, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. These two in verse six go together. But they're both active. You might look at it and you say it it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So if I don't rejoice at wrongdoing, then I I am passively, passively saying that that's wrong. So then obviously the truth must be true. That's not what Paul is saying do you know what i'm saying so if someone says to me did was jesus the son of god or asks a question that you know is blatantly false sometimes based on the context and uh this is in our postmodern society sometimes there is the desire to within certain frame of reference and certain people to maybe give an answer that is I'm stating theologically what I agree with, but not in any way answering their question or denying their question or actually rejoicing in the truth. Do you know what I'm saying? So we have a way with words where someone can ask us a touchy, touchy subject at work. That's where it usually happens. Or, um, you know, maybe on a play date with unbelieving families. Someone asks you a question, you kind of, whoa, whoa. Everybody and everybody like huddles around the Christian because they want to know, do you really believe do Christians really believe this? Are we going to go to hell forever? Well, uh, you see. And sometimes we, we want to give the right answer and we want to tell them the truth. But at the same time, we're, you know, we're justifying. Well, I've got to work with these people for the rest of my life or I've got to work with them for a while. And, you know. One who's filled up with God to where they are rejoicing in opportunities to be able to serve others is not going to rejoice at wrongdoing or uh, slack from an opportunity that but will rejoice with the truth. These two are both active. One is one is not passive. We are not passively just assuming the truth. We are rejoicing with the truth. So you have another believer at work who is being mocked for something that he believes. We rejoice with the truth. You rejoice when good things are done. You rejoice when right is acted on. When, when right decisions are made. When we feel like the abortion issue, when things are done, things are passed that are helpful. And that can possibly get Roe versus Wade turned around or something like that. And we rejoice with things like that. We do not rejoice when there are, when people fall. When people are found to be in sin. We don't rejoice in that. That's not coming from the heart of a person who at the center of their being loves God. Then we come to these last four and in kind of in staccato fashion, Paul closes out this list. And these all four have similar wording other than the verb itself. They're only two words long and um, it's the verb and then. Uh, The phrase or the word Panta, which just means all things or all. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But these are not universal inclusives. These are not saying that you have to believe everybody and everything they're saying. This does not mean you have to bear every burden and everything that comes your way. You have to do it. Or you have to hope in everything, and endure all the time. These are not universal inclusives. What Paul is doing, and this is this was helpful for me by based on the translation that uh, we read at the beginning, what Paul is doing is similar to what East Germany did when they tore down the wall. They tore down the Berlin Wall, and that's not saying everyone come in the country. No, they tore down the wall so that there's no boundary. But they didn't open the doors and say anybody who wants to come in can come in for free. And the more the merrier, whoever you are. Do you understand? So one does not mean when I tear down the borders, when I tear down a fence, it doesn't mean anybody can come onto my property. It just means I would like to have there be no fence. So what Paul is doing is he's tearing down the fence. He's getting rid of any he's excluding the limits of love. He's tearing down the fence of love so that now love can go anywhere. But he's not saying everything that comes in, you have to love. Does that make sense? For instance, a position on homosexuality. I don't have to believe it. Someone gives me a position saying uh, against what scripture says. I don't have to believe it. Because I don't have to accept everything that comes into my sphere that God is bringing into, you know, into my realm. But it does mean that my love goes to the homosexual community and my love and my desire for them to come to Christ does actually have actions that speak louder than people who are making the news Love bears all things. It's the, it has the idea of a roof. It bears, it supports all things. May the roof of your love never fall. May you be able to support any storm, any any weather damage that might happen. Being able to support all things. Let me use the translation that uh, is actually more helpful. It, it uses the negatives, um, to show and to reinforce this idea of it's, it's, uh, excluding the limits instead of making a universal and inclusive. So excluding the limits so it gives the negatives. It never tires of support. Does your love ever tire of supporting someone? It never loses faith, never exhausts hope, and never gives up. Never gives up. This love endures all things or never gives up. This word is a synonym for the first one we saw. And patience. Love is patient. Love endures all things. These two words are often used as synonyms. So it creates bookends to these verses. in that this love is worthy of pursuit. Because as verse 8 tells us, it never fails. So these two, love is patient. Love endures all things, love never fails. This is the type of love that I want to be known for. I want to be known as the type of person that loves in this way, because this love never fails. This is what is worth living for. Is being a type of person that loves God that overflows to others in love like this. That brings us to our second point. Love is a process. So love is a verb, but love is also a process. This compendium on love begins and ends with patience and endurance. And it's fitting because this type of love isn't something we're going to walk out of here and, and go to the ground and say, apple tree. And there it is. And I eat apples. We go to the ground and we dig and we wait and we nurture and we do whatever it takes to get that apple, to bring out apple trees. So we go home and we want to be the type of person that is full of God, that fills ourselves up in joy in God so that we outwardly express these things naturally because it's supernaturally working through us. And so we go home and we don't just say Bible, love, and we love. And so you're automatically just transformed. And your wife is like, you're amazing. And and I love you. And you've done everything I ever asked you to do. And you don't go to work anymore because you're taking care of me all the time. And you're pampering me. And we can't afford food. And this is wonderful. That doesn't happen. Love is a process. And so God is continually through the scriptures asking us to endure, to persevere. Love is patient. Love endures. It's a process. We go home. What do we do? We're just begging God for more. God, we need more of you. We need more of your scripture. I need you because sometimes we we don't have a desire to read God's word. So we need God to give us a desire to read his word. We need God to give us a desire for more of him. We need God to give us a desire for church and for worship. And sometimes that's a process and it's work. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, allow me to read this. Therefore, since we are so uh, surrounded by such a large cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, Who for joy laid before him, endured a cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God's throne. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. In this race, which is a marathon, not a sprint, God is asking us to persevere, to endure, to be patient. To endure all things. But he's not asking us to do it in a ho-hum, this is going to be awful type of way. I've got to read my Bible again because I, I'm, I'm doing the hard work. I'm going to plow and I'm going to a spade and I'm going to trim the tree. And it's going to finally produce apples and then we can rejoice. God is saying, in the cross, there was joy. On the cross, there was joy because Jesus, who for the joy laid before him, endured the cross. What does Jesus see when he's on the cross? Don't know. But all we hear is, Father, forgive them. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. He's not looking at, this is awful. I'm in pain and I can't breathe. He's looking forward to something else. In Philippians, Paul is continually encouraging the the Philippian Christians to let go of everything that's behind you and keep straining for what's ahead of you. So we want to grow. We want to be the type of person that loves like this. Well, we don't just pursue patience. We don't pursue these actions. We pursue God, the author of love. That brings us to our third point. Love is a person. Love is a person. 1 John 4, 8. We looked at some of this in first John last week, but so helpful. First John four eight if I can find first John four eight. Anyone who does not anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Because God is love. We're not pursuing the fruit, the apples. We're pursuing the tree and the whole root system. We're pursuing God. Love is a person. Romans 5, 8, but God proved his own love to us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Love is a person when God on through Christ on the cross. He didn't just die for this feeling of love that he would like us to have. And so he told Paul, to write about this feeling that would be really fun and enjoyable and make us all have, have a nicer life and world peace. He didn't write for that. He didn't die for that. He didn't die for a feeling. He died for faces. His love had a face. And it was your face and my face. And so that when he's on the cross, he's not dying for some idea of love and salvation. He's dying for David and Paul and Barb. Josh. Love is a person. Love is God. God is love. And then we were the objects of God's love. We were the people that God loved. So that now our love is not just an idea and something we pursue, this emotional feeling, but our love is a person. My love is ultimately found in God, but it also because I'm filled up in great joy with God. I can't wait to express it to everyone else. And it supernaturally is flowing from the spirit to Mike and Lisa and Paul. And so my love has a person and it's you and it's my neighbor and it's my friends at work and my family who's coming to visit. So I pray that as we close, that we would be. People who are ultimately, if nothing else, we remember the definition of what love is, is overflow of joy in God. Love is overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. Are you overflowing in joy, of joy in God? Are you filled up with God? Or are you struggling to love your spouse? Are you struggling in your relationship with God and your children? Kids, are you struggling with your brother or sister and loving them and you can't wait to play with their toys you know they're getting for Christmas? Let's be praying that God would allow this culture of loving God to permeate our body here so that we as believers are not pushing one another and do you have the latest gadget? But are you in love with God? Are you pursuing God? Let's be praying to that end. Father, we love you. We thank you that you in love pursued us and died for us while we were yet sinners. God, that's the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate. All year round is the gospel. We are a church that loves the gospel. We love Jesus Christ because what He has done for us, He loved us when we were unlovely. And God, even now in this time of year, where we, where we celebrate by nature of, of our calendar and society, we celebrate and we're reminded of Jesus being in, in, incarnated into a baby. Jesus being made flesh, we rejoice in what has happened in the transaction that has taken on our place, that the King of all creation would humble Himself to be born of a virgin, for the purpose of dying on a cross for those that He loves. And so I pray that that permeates us, that influences us, that fills us up, and with such joy. That we long for opportunities to make that known and to serve others. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.